1: Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Despite dog whistle headlines about our polarised society, most of us are much more at ease with one another than some assume. At least that was one of the findings of the Wolfe Institute's diversity study of England and Wales, how we get along. Having said that, religious diversity seems to be the subject of most general concern, trumping worries about ethnicity or nationality. And when it comes to religion, it is Islam that's viewed with most suspicion. If religion is a sticking point in the move towards inclusivity, then Islam seems to be the final frontier we're following up the recent discussion about anti-Semitism with a program about Islamophobia. Could these prejudices be two sides of the same coin? Islamophobia can take many forms, of course, from the rabid to the passive-aggressive. Here's Samaya Afsal of the Muslim Council of Britain, speaking on the Wolf Institute podcast, Encounter.
2: As any community, you have to be open to criticism, you have to be open to debating beliefs and ideas. But I think where that crosses the boundary into advocating for there to be less Islam or less Muslims in the UK, for example, in Europe, that's the kind of language that then transcends that barrier. Um, And obviously, we're very uh, keen on uh, protecting free speech, as is everybody else in in the UK. We're very open to debates, um, but I think that there needs to be an understanding of, of how respectful that is.
1: With me to discuss Islamophobia are Baroness Saeed Vasi, who was the first Muslim woman to be appointed to the cabinet in the UK. She was Minister of State of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and then Faith and Communities Minister before leaving the government in 2014. She's also a tough Yorkshire lady. And alongside her is a Lancastrian, Dr. Julian Hargreaves, Senior Research Fellow at the Wolf Institute, who led our study, How We Get Along. And Julian's academic interest includes Islamophobia, as well as anti-Semitism. Saeeda, you were the first Muslim woman to be appointed to the Cabinet. I remember it as a time of great optimism. How do you look back on it?
0: Well, first of all, thank you very much for hosting this podcast. And I think it's such an important and timely subject uh, that we're having to discuss again. And interestingly for me, during lockdown, I'm sure like many other people, you've been tidying out old cupboards and files, and I've been tidying out old paperwork and came across lots of things from my time in government, including the pictures of me attending my first cabinet meeting in this pink of kameez. I was looking through letters that people had sent me during that time, and it was a really great moment of optimism and hope. It was the first time that the Conservatives were back in power, albeit in coalition, after many years. And it was the first time that we had a coalition cabinet in recent history and the people around the table that I had the privilege of serving in cabinet with were huge characters. So people like Ken Clark and Dominic Grieve and David Willis and Justin Greening. And one of the things that I was reflecting on was just how many of those people who were who I consider to be kind of big giants within the Conservative Party were simply no longer there. And just how much politics had changed and how much, therefore, I think, unfortunately, the tone of politics has changed. So I definitely think it was a more optimistic time.
1: So it was a more optimistic time. And Julian, Islamophobia as a term, it seems to be younger than anti-Semitism. Does that help us understand or define it?
3: Well, you're quite right. Islamophobia is a a younger term than anti-Semitism. I don't refute the existence of Islamophobia. I'm not someone who thinks that the problem has been exaggerated. I've spoken to enough Muslim people and organisations to know that it's a deep-rooted, widespread issue. But I do think the academic study of Islamophobia has been hindered and limited by a lack of large-scale, robust evidence. And let me just illustrate that point, because I realise it's a bit controversial. If you think back to the original report on Islamophobia, when it sort of burst into the public conscience, it's around um, the late 90s with the Runnymede Trust report. There was actually very few large scale studies of Muslims done at that time. And the report relies on a lot of anecdotal evidence. If you think as well, the census didn't include a question on religion until 2001. Similarly, the crime survey didn't include a question on religion until the mid to late noughties around 2007. When Islamophobia is talked about, particularly in the press, there are two sources of information, both of which are quite limited. One is police recorded crime. So we often see figures around religiously motivated hate crime. But the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, recently decategorised police recorded crime. It no longer considers it robust enough to be national statistics. it's, it's, It's too unreliable. And finally, we've got a great organisation, Mama, who often get quoted, but their data tends to be self-reported and they don't often open it up. But Baroness Farsi is one of the key people in this country who's publicised and done more, I think, for Muslim communities than, than many, you know, many MPs and other, other organisations. I do think we're still slightly limited by not just the lack of evidence, but the lack of use of evidence as well.
0: I think Julie makes a really powerful point here, Ed, because if you, it's nearly 10 years probably to the day, which is interesting that we're having this conversation when I made my first kind of big speech on Islamophobia and it was done at Leicester University. And what I basically said, Islamophobia has passed the dinner table test and it kind of hit all these great headlines. And the big argument that came back was, well, what do you mean Islamophobia has passed the dinner table test? The conceptualising of what that form of racism was, how prevalent it was, and how we defined it, these were all such new terms. Now, I think to some extent, because I'd lived and breathed this for so long of my life, so I saw the Runnymede Trust, I was also involved with the Joseph Roundtree Trust, and we funded some of the early work on Islamophobia. So because I'd kind of lived this for such a long time, I think when I was talking about this in 2011, I kind of thought, well, everybody surely gets what I'm talking about here. This is such an obvious problem and it's such an obvious thing that we should be dealing with. And what fascinated me was how at a policy level, People were unfamiliar with the term, unfamiliar with what it meant, how I was trying to explain it to people, how I was now saying, actually, it wasn't just the kind of racism that we grew up with in the streets where somebody came up to you and called you names and maybe roughed you up a bit. It crept into civil society and the way in which you could identify either in press rooms or think tanks or even in public policy areas. It was much more subtle than that. And to try and explain that in a way was it's the kind of dinner table conversation that happens in, in respectable homes. And therefore, when we were trying to find the definition of Islamophobia, there were two questions that we felt were really important. One was, what should the term be? Because there's been this huge debate about, should we call it anti-Muslim racism? Should we call it anti-Muslim hatred? Should we call it Islamophobia? And although Islamophobia is not a perfect term, the overwhelming evidence that the All-Party Parliamentary Group on British Muslims heard, and we went across the country on this, was that Islamophobia is probably the most widely recognized and most widely used word. So although it's not perfect, that's the term. And also victims particularly would use the word Islamophobia. So it was the word of choice for those that been subjected to this form of racism and therefore we went with that. And so the definition that the All-Party Parliamentary Group came up with was that Islamophobia is a form of racism and is rooted in racism that targets expressions of Muslimness or perceived Muslimness and that covers everything from buildings to people as well as kind of other symbols.
3: Julian? I can perfectly understand and see the rationale behind the approach to the APPG definition I should say but. I thought, if I'm honest, it was a bit of a missed opportunity. I absolutely agree that Islamophobia has a relationship with racism. I think that Muslims, to an extent, are forgive the language, sort of lumped together as a race might be and discriminated against on that basis. But I think the actual definition suffers from a little bit of sociological jargon, which I think is. Perhaps likely to be misunderstood at kind of street and community level. The idea of Muslimness or perceived Muslimness, I think, is heavily rooted in the academy at a time when, for instance, the definition of anti-Semitism, we talked earlier about the relationship, is really understood as the hatred of Jews. And that definition, whilst not perfect, has created a kind of common sense understanding amongst Jewish communities. Obviously, the APPG's definition is, I don't mean to sound patronising, but obviously it's well-meaning. It was put together by really well-regarded scholars and parliamentarians. But the fact that it's not been adopted widely, I think, says something about the definition. I think it also says something about the political climate into which the definition was launched finally it's quite clear that it was rejected by the police although some police officers were and police commissioners were involved in the report and the and the process by which the definition was generated i think that there was a, a feeling within the police That the way the report was put together, some of the people involved, some of the ways the definition might operate might actually firstly confuse police officers who only a few years ago were asked to include a category of hate crime, uh, Islamophobic hate crime, a separate distinct category. They were then told a few years later uh, that actually, Islamophobia is a type of racism. So it, it feels like it's a confusion for the police, and also, so much of the report which um, which accompanied the definition, so much of it was attacking the police and counterterrorism strategies, all justifiable, you know, on their own merit. However, I think the police felt uh, slightly defensive about their position, and I think in hindsight, it might have been better to perhaps cast the net a bit more widely than just including sort of left of centre academics in in, in the formulation of this definition?
0: So I think where I agree with Julian is the fact that this definition was couched in the political climate which is deeply hostile to British Muslims and so therefore what's telling about the definition which actually I would disagree with Julian has been widely adopted so politically it's been adopted by the Labour Party the Liberal Democrats by the Welsh parties by the SNP in fact it's even been adopted by the Conservative Party in Scotland the only people who didn't adopt the definition was the current Conservative Party in Westminster and I think there's no doubt that the current Conservative party in Westminster has a fraught relationship with Muslims, I think is probably the nicest way that I can put it. What was important for me in this definition was that just like all communities, the British Muslim communities are very diverse and to try and unite them behind a definition was an impossible task. I mean, if it was an impossible task to unite British Jews of a couple of 100,000 behind a definition, to try and unite a community of millions behind a definition was a huge mountain to climb. And I think what was a huge success for the APPG definition and remains so is that for the first time we found religiously practicing Muslims, super liberal Muslims, secular Muslims, non-practicing Muslims, uh, Sunni, Shias, Ahmadiyya Muslims, minority Muslims. We found men and women, so women's groups, uh, very liberal women's groups, all of them came out behind the definition. Yet we had a few who said no, but we would have expected that. And what was interesting was that the detractors to the definition each and every one of them had at some point had concerns raised about the way in which the Muslim communities had felt not protected by them. So I think where I would disagree with Julian is that I think the definition is understood. I think the definition is widely supported, particularly widely supported amongst British Muslim communities which is the community that it seeks to protect, that it has the support of dozens of academics, I think over 100 now, and they're not all left leaning academics, although most academics generally lean left. So, you know, that's just the academic world. And it has the support of all political parties, including the Conservative Party, except for the Conservative Party in Westminster. The tragedy is that this is all being done in the backdrop of, by a party in government who is itself embroiled in numerous, hundreds of cases of Islamophobia and an inquiry that should have reported nearly a year ago, which is still, you know, kind of lying and has has absolutely kind of no, has made no progress. It's an inquiry to which I have given evidence and I've been deeply disappointed in the way in which even my own kind of evidence session has been handled. So I think it's really important for us to be careful to divide the toxic political environment that we're in around Muslims and particularly their ruling party's relationship with Muslims. And what I think is a very good working definition, non-legally binding working definition. That's what this is. This is not asking for law change, just like the IHRA definition is. not this is a good building block. And I think now what we need to do is stop talking about what the word should be, stop talking about what the definition should be, acknowledge that there's a problem and start coming up with some policy proposals that start to impact on people's everyday lives.
1: You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Saeed Avasi and Julian Hargreaves. We're talking about Islamophobia. One of the things that gets people hot under the collar, if that's the right phrase, is women's headgear. Here's Samaya Afsal again a muslim woman who wonders what all the fuss is about
2: in most uh, if not all cases um anyone who who was to be a witness or to to take the stand in in that kind of environment would you know be expected and would oblige and, and and take it off same with you know going into places like banks and and places where you know faces need to be seen it's there's no problem in in asking someone to remove that veil Um, And I think that that's uh, one of the the, the common misconceptions that, you know, once someone wears it, that's it. You know, you you, you can't uh, speak to them. They're they're cut off from you. But I think that those lines of communication are, are always there.
1: Saida, I'd like to explore in particular Muslim women who suffer disproportionately from abuse on the street, presumably because of their visibility or is it a version of misogyny?
0: I think women are easy targets generally for hate crime because hate crime is predominantly perpetuated by men and therefore it is an easier target. But secondly, visibly Muslim or visibly any kind of uh, religious community are more likely to be targeted because they're easily identifiable. I think if you and I had walked down the street, I'm not sure people would immediately say, well, he's Jewish and she's Muslim. Whereas I think if somebody walked with a kippah or a headscarf or a turban, that's why so many Sikh communities are attacked, perceived to be Muslim. What's really worrying is that often these victims will will themselves talk about their own embarrassment and shame at having been attacked, having suffered these quite serious attacks. They then don't report it, don't talk about it, somehow feel that it was their fault, that they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, And it causes deep-rooted long-term problems with people giving up work, being fearful about being independent, about doing things for themselves. And if you look at the statistics from Mama, overwhelmingly women are overrepresented in
1: the victims. Is there a danger, and I I recognise this from all minority communities, where there's a sense of being the victim, being persecuted? I just wonder whether it feeds into that, whether the work of Tel Mama or the work of CST, the purpose of which is to identify examples of anti-Semitism Islamophobia, uh, they're actually motivated to look for it. I wonder, Julian, first of all, you, in terms of actually putting together the evidence, whether we're in danger of falling into that trap?
3: Oh, it's a tricky question to answer because at the heart of that sort of question is really issues around whether the problem has been exaggerated or exploited or somehow weaponized to form a grievance, which is then itself used as a as a sort of political tool. And those kind of questions often sort of pit themselves, if you like, people who ask them often sort of fall into the trap, I think, of implying that, in fact, Islamophobia has been exaggerated, or perhaps has been weaponized. So I think it's important to say, as as Saeed has quite rightly said, that women are particularly prone to being victimised by Islamophobia. I think we both agree that the problem is widespread and deep-rooted within British society. I think that organisations such as CAGE, which is, you might say, a sort of Anti-counter terrorist advocacy group, a campaign group which campaigns against counterterrorism, and groups like MEND, which purport to represent the interests of British Muslim communities, often make statements about Islamophobia which are less than helpful. So Cage, for example, often likes to portray any and every aspect of the British government as deeply Islamophobic, which I think is just empirically wrong. And MEND in the past, the head of research a couple of years ago, said that conditions in our country were almost like a precursor to an anti-Muslim genocide, which I just think was wild and inaccurate and deeply unhelpful. Saida, let's talk about where it's coming
1: from, Islamophobia anti-Muslim hatred and perceptions of Muslimness and so on, is it simply a white, male, far-right problem or is it much more prevalent as far as you're concerned?
0: On the street, it is, you know, anybody who decides to take a pop at somebody who appears to be visibly Muslim. But, you know, I've uh, experienced this in the corridors of power. I've experienced it in the way in which expectations about Muslim communities are different. The tropes about Muslim communities Let's take COVID. We had members of parliament in my own party trying to make this a specific issue where somehow COVID was being spread by a specific community and they were trying to make it a Muslim problem. You know, we've heard the phrase being used that what are we going to do about the Muslim problem? And, you know, quite rightly, communities, including British Jewish communities, were in uproar about the use of that phrase. So I think there is no such thing as a classic Islamophobe. They tend to be predominantly white, they tend to be predominantly male, they tend to be predominantly from the right of politics. You know, the kind of Islamophobes that I come across are fairly educated, respectable people, academics, people that you'd find in newsrooms, people that you'd find in politics. Islamophobes, just like anti-Semites, don't come dressed in swastikas and looking like Nazis. You know, we see them in all walks of life.
3: I agree with much of uh, what's just been said, actually. I think I would sort of develop that further and say that for the purposes of academic research and policy work, I think it's important to separate the climate of Islamophobia in which sort of British society often operates and or produces, I should say, with individual incidents and incidents which affect groups. So just to illustrate that a bit further, I think, Large scale studies of the British media, particularly the British printed media, have demonstrated, in fact, you know, shown fairly conclusively that newspaper editors and journalists relate Muslims and Islam to violence and conflict and hatred far more often than they do to anything uh, more positive. So that association within the press has been conclusively established, conclusively determined When it comes to incidents on the street, particularly physical violence, I think the evidence is a bit shakier. And actually, looking at crime survey data, we see that Muslims are no more likely to be physically attacked than other groups. However, the big discrepancy is in these incidents such as verbal abuse. And in the studies I've done, these much harder to measure incidents, some people call them microaggressions, I think they're a bit stronger than that, actually. From the work I've done around the country, talking particularly to Muslim women, I've heard unending accounts of being ignored in shops, standing at a bus stop and having a bus sail by when it's half empty, being sort of subject to hostile environments outside school gates, in doctor's surgeries, in hospitals, all kinds of public places. And these incidents really are are hard to tackle because they're hard to measure and they're hard to observe often. So how
1: do we tackle it, Saida? If it's as prevalent as you and Julian are saying, and if it's not limited to any one particular group, or there are stereotypes of certain groups who are Islamophobic, and it's at all levels of society, what do we do now?
0: I think there were a whole series of policy proposals, some of them, I mean, Talmama was one that I put forward and adopted in government, remembering Srebrenica uh, was another, Sadaka Day, which reflected Mitzvah Day, was another. There were lots and lots of kind of individual policy proposals. The Big Iftar, which was a take on on the Big Lunch, there were policy proposals that were put out which would allow us to start to build positive community around Muslimness and around Muslims, and I think that can be done. You see, I
1: don't think in my experience of it and reflecting on Islamophobia, that there's a lack of interest and a lack of recognition of its importance. I I don't think so. And I'm not sure how important the exact definition is, forgive me, and I felt the same about the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. I, I kind of feel, well, let's make a definition and get on. I suppose what I worry about as somebody spending time on looking at relations between religions is that many of these initiatives that you've mentioned, saida the Open Mosque Day, the Sadaka Day, Big Iftar, and and so on, still haven't really dealt with the problem of exceptionalization, if you like, of Islam. It seems to me some of this is about, you know, making Islam this exceptional case, different from everything else, and therefore it's an easier target. And I just worry that we haven't done that effectively enough.
0: You know, people said to me, if we put more positive stories out about Muslims, they would counter all the negative stories about Muslims. And I said, well, actually, I just settle for accurate stories about Muslims. If we treated Bad people who happen to be Muslim, just the same as bad people who happen to be Christian or atheist or any other religion would be fine. But the fact that we actually focus on somebody's religion as a kind of a defining feature of the fact that, say, there, there may be a, a paedophile, as opposed to the fact that there are paedophiles out there of all faiths and of no faiths. You're absolutely right. It's this constant argument. And it's what I raised in my book at some length Ed, where I said, if homophobia is wrong, it's wrong, full stop. It's wrong in the Catholic Church. It's wrong amongst, you know, older generation kind of rural communities. It's wrong amongst religious communities. But what we can't say is that, well, if something said by a sermon in a black church is exactly the same as something said as a sermon on a pulpit in a mosque, we go after the guy in the mosque, but we kind of ignore what was said in the church. And that was exactly what was happening in government, both in the way in which it engaged, both in the way in which it kind of targeted and and said that was a problematic community. And the most recent case of it has been, again, you've probably been seeing this, prevent was such a bad policy in terms of it tried to do something good, but did it in a really bad way. And Muslim communities have for years been saying this needs to be properly looked at. I'm actually a supporter of a policy which prevents people from being radicalised. Why would anybody not be part supportive of a policy that prevents somebody from being radicalised? The people that they are likely to radicalise are going to be my kids. So I would want this policy to work. For years and years, there was a campaign to say this needs to be properly reviewed. Finally, after a vote in the House of Lords, this was won and the government was forced into having an independent review. The government announced an independent reviewer, William Shawcross, who has said some terrible things about Muslims and Islam in the past. And that is a classic case of Islamophobia. This is a classic case of a government that has failed to understand a very simple and important issue about how this review needed to be independent, to be seen to be independent and to be conducted by somebody who would have the trust of the communities to whom this policy predominantly was applied to. And it did completely the opposite without any thought for the consequences that this would have. That's when I say to you, Ed, this is a huge mountain to climb and it's going to require coalitions of people, not just the Muslim community, to fight it.
1: And we're drawing towards a close. I'd just like to ask Julian whether in his research and whether there is any cross-generational developments, Julian, in your studies, you know, looking at the different generations, whether it's in terms of attitudes towards Muslims or attitudes within the Muslim community.
3: I did a study last year which looked at Muslims and Jews. We, we surveyed a thousand Jewish people and a thousand Muslim people asking about sensitivity towards certain statements. So we we showed the Jewish people a list of anti-Semitic statements and we showed Muslim respondents a list of Islamophobic statements and we asked and measured and compared and, and we found actually that younger people, younger Muslim people in the survey tended to be more sensitive towards Islamophobic statements than older people. We tended to find that Muslim people in education, particularly at university level, tended to be more sensitive towards the Islamophobic statements now, I'm not quite sure what this tells us in terms of overall sensitivities. Other things that we've found looking at things like the crime survey is that attitudes towards the British state and British police tend to be more positive in older Muslim participants within the crime survey. So, yes, we do see lots of uh, generational shifts. I think it's quite a, a messy picture, though, and it sort of defies easy, you know, simplistic conclusions. But there does seem to be a few examples of generational divides. Thanks to my guests, Saida
1: Vasi and Julian Hargreaves for their valuable insights. And thanks to you too, of course, for listening. If you want to hear more of our wide ranging podcast, you can catch up with our back catalogue. There are episodes on conflict, grief, the American election, and many, many more. And you can also find our new podcast, The A to Z of the Holy Land from Arab Design. Please subscribe wherever you access your podcasts, or you can find Naked Reflections at nakedscientistscom slash reflections. I'll be back next week with some more guests.